we should consider, at least consider, be knowledgeable, know all these guidelines, consider them, and then when we are well equipped, we can then let go and use feelings and inspiration. Hi, I'm Ben Kaplow, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Rami Barneve. Rami Barneve is one of Israel's most acclaimed and sought-after pianists. He travels extensively and has become an international citizen, concertizing all over the world. Born in Tel Aviv, he graduated with honors from the Ron Conservatory and the Rubin Academy of Music and was the recipient of many prizes and scholarships. He won the America-Israel Cultural Foundation competition and was awarded a scholarship to further his studies in the United States. After graduating from Manus College of Music in New York, where he studied with the renowned Nadia Reisenberg, he won numerous competitions and embarked on a successful worldwide concert career. He received the Best Performer Award from the Israeli government. Rami Barneve made history by being the first and so far the only Israeli artist to perform in Egypt following the Begin Sadat Peace Treaty. Rami's recordings for Columbia Records and other labels in Israel and abroad have been met with praise and popularity. His recordings and videos have been very successful on the internet, and he has often been at the top of the charts. His compositions are published, recorded, and performed all over the world. In this episode, we talked about phrasing and melodic shaping. We discussed some of the guidelines of expression that he lays out in his memoir, Blood, Sweat, and Tours. Rami was generous enough to prepare many examples of repertoire to use to illustrate his guidelines, and I uploaded sheet music from all of them into the show notes if you'd like to follow along with the score. But if that's not feasible, no problem, and this interview is perfectly easy to follow with audio only. I hope you enjoy. Rami Barneve, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Sure. Today, we're going to talk about phrasing and melodic shaping. A lot about what we're going to discuss today is going to come from your book, Blood, Sweat, and Tours. Uh, This book has a lot of autobiographical information about your life as a concert pianist and some general thoughts about music and piano. We're going to focus, though, on a very small portion of the book today where you offer guidelines for interpretation, and we're going to go through several of them kind of in detail and use examples. But since this excerpt of the book is very short to kind of lay the groundwork for everything else, I want to just get everything on the table. So can you talk a little bit about these guidelines and list them? I will list them now uh, with numbers. First, uh, save. Don't give away everything right away. Build slowly, gradually. Have the whole piece in mind or the whole movement in mind, or if you play more than one piece, the whole program in mind. Number two, repeat differently, but not big differences like day and night or black and white not such great contrast, actually vary with shade and subtlety. Number three, think long line. Number four, line going to the end. Don't stop or hesitate before you finish the end of the line. Don't let down the last note. Don't let down the tension. On the other hand, no need to accent either. Number five, be precise on when to let go notes, what I call play the rest. Number six, connect things, make them belong, 
everything depends on what was before and what comes after. The present is really a combination of the past and the future. Number seven, shape phrases. Number eight, make waves, but don't make the listener seasick. Number nine is what in Russia they call intonacia. It's a whole theory of relationship between the notes. One of the main things there is the tension within interval. Number 10, pay attention to harmonic change. Number 11, which is quite a large topic on its own, the style of the composers, of the periods, and of the pieces in themselves. Things like uh, great European conductors teach the students that a third movement in the Mozart concerto, symphony, chamber music, or sonata should be double the speed of the first movement. That's the tradition. Uh, things like topics and styles in Mozart, Haydn, and other composers. Now, what are topics and styles? And this is all still number 11 because it's different for different composers and different periods. Topics and styles are like hunting, lyrical, military, Turkish, gypsy, machinery, opera, comedy, things like this that appear in the music of Mozart, Haydn, and others. Uh, hairpins uh, may mean more than just dynamics. And still the last thing in number 11 is like, what does andante mean in Brahms? And therefore, what something like Pio Andante would mean in Brahms. So uh, these all things uh, belong to different periods, styles, and composers. Number 12, upbeat and grace notes are very important. They're very expressive if you give them the right attention uh, rhythm-wise and volume or dynamic-wise. Number 13, phrase groups of notes from the second to the first of the next group. Two, three, four, one. Two, three, four, one. Number 14, megabeat. Treat measures, full measures, or sometimes half measures, like you treat beats in a single measure. If you have uh, the hierarchy of uh, importance in a measure, like the first beat, the third, the second, and the fourth in this order, Treat four measures with the same order of importance. One, three, two, four. And number 15 will be the last one. Phrases that go short, short, and double the length. That's classical music and apparently all over the place. Sometimes two measures, two measures and four, sometimes 4.8, etc. Thank you. There's so much to talk about there. And I think these sorts of topics are so important because to me, this is really what makes music come alive and is how we get beyond just the basics of rhythm, pitch, articulation. Um, so today we're going to talk about a lot of those in detail, but a few big picture questions before we plunge into some specifics. 
Can you clarify how you arrived at these guidelines? Like, is this stuff that you were taught when you were younger or stuff that over the course of your career you've come to realize or maybe both? Even more than uh, both. Uh, yes, I was taught things by my teachers. Some things I just picked up along the way, uh, sometimes from colleagues, and some things as uh, I, I did pick up I mean, I did uh, figure out uh, by myself from studying and delving into the music of the great composers. Yeah. And if we think about this list that you just gave, I can think of a few there that I believe every single person listening to this podcast would agree with. And there are several there that I have heard variations of before. And then there were a few in that list that really I felt like I had never heard before. It was a completely new perspective. And as far as I'm aware, was is made up by you. Um, and I say that not remotely in a negative way. Um, and so my question is, uh, you know, this topic is somewhat subjective compared to some other elements of music. Um, so if we were to kind of make a spectrum and on one side of the spectrum would be thinking of these guidelines as just purely your own personal opinion. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, thinking of these as mandates that are like enshrined as almost a law, where would you place these guidelines? Well, it's hard for me to answer the question the way you asked me. I believe, <laughs> I believe that they're very important. I don't think they're just my own opinions because mm -hmm. uh, even though I arrived at some by myself, I, I hear them with others too. The one thing that we have to remember is that art, the art of music, has to have the balance uh, between brain and heart. And uh, the brain is the knowledge that we acquire, and the heart is the feelings that we put in. And the feelings come from inspiration, while the knowledge comes through perspiration. So uh, we shouldn't forget that once we do all we use, we should consider, at least consider, at least be knowledgeable, know all these guidelines, consider them, and then when we are well equipped, we can then let go and use feelings and inspiration. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of things like that in life where you want to marry kind of a knowledge of some general guidelines with emotional freedom. And I think that using guidelines such as these is a great way to make sure that our playing is expressive and internal and to some extent uh, subjective, but not completely a free for all where every measure is done into a black hole with no knowledge of what came before it. So that's why I do think guidelines like these are important, even if there is a little bit of subjectivity to them. Um, so I want to go now through some of the specific ones. Obviously, there were, I believe, 15 guidelines there. So we're not going to be able to get through all or even the majority of one of them. And I want to emphasize quality over quantity. So we're going to kind of deep dive into some of the ones that stuck out to me. And I would love to go through some specific examples of pieces that maybe we would play ourselves or that our students would play and talk about how some of these guidelines might apply. So the first one that struck me was repeat differently, just because this is something I think about 
all the time with my own playing and with my students playing. And it reminds me of Nadia Boulanger, of the famous teacher who um, I believe would tell her students that playing music for the listener twice identically is insulting them. Um, but what we also don't want to have, going back to my point about a free-for-all earlier, is interpretive variations of a musical repeat where there's just random variations that kind of come out of nowhere. So can you give an example of a thoughtful interpretation of a musical repetition? I'm going to give first an example of a composer himself, because this is the best book also that my ideas are not that subjective. Second movement of Mozart's sonata in F major. into minor key and then uh, a little bit later he repeats the exact same thing but how does he repeat it where he started this way he already repeats this way and then i'm skipping a measure he starts ornamenting I'm jumping back and forth in the music, I'm sorry, but there's a part, a double third part that goes like this in the right hand. When he repeats it later on, and I'm not even going there, uh, then I'll even stay in the same key because he repeats in a different key, of course, but here's what he does. Chopin does, 
And now, sometimes composers repeat the same thing, uh, not writing it out so they can... Yeah, repeat. that's what I was going to ask about. And they write just a repeat sign. And that's when I take it from the composer that I need to do the job now of varying, of doing something slightly different. And this will be so slight, and I'll give you one little idea. If you change fingering sometimes, like in this chromatic scale, first time I personally take the traditional chromatic scale fingering of, of three on the black key, thumb on the white, and one, two on the two uh, ascending uh, white. But when it repeats, I take another fingering of one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five. It goes a little smoother, a little more elegant. And then I have another fingering of right away after the uh, turn, doing one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five. Twice, one, two, three, four, five. Can you talk a little bit about why you would want to do the smooth fingering second as opposed to first? Simply to get a little different sound. Okay. First, I was uh, kind of uh, articulated or even percussive. I want the second one to be more elegant. Uh, right. This, this is uh, subjective. This is how I do it, what I do. But the okay. fact that something has to be done, uh, in my idea, is objective. <laughs> right. I understand that. Well, I also think the effect it has is then you hear the scale more clearly. So you can hear what the pitches are the first time. And then once that's already in the listeners' heads, then you can make it a little bit more of a wash. And they've heard it more in its pure form the first time. So I could understand that progression. So the next uh, one that I want to talk about, um, which I was interested in, was play the rests like you play the notes. So obviously, I think every teacher would agree that rests are an important part of music the same way that notes are. Um, can you talk about what you mean by play in this context, since I believe this is a kind of maybe metaphorical use of the word play? Um, so can you talk about an example where we could interpret a rest in a piece musically as opposed to kind of just as a break? Uh, what I mean is be precise mm. when the rest comes. And maybe instead of saying play the rest, I could say unplay the notes. Ah. The idea is to possibly make the same uh, movement when you strike a note or press a note or play a note, undo that. America, unplay that. That was like let go the note precisely. And that's what I wanted to say. And if we still look at the sets, second movement of the Mozart sonata, uh, we can see. Off, the right hand. Here, exactly, to come off exactly on time. Another example is the etude by Chopin, opus 10, number 12. I'll just even do the right hand. One, two, three is off. Mm. One, two, three. And it has to be precise. Uh, 
Sometimes she would give it held indefinitely and sometimes maybe too short. So all I'm saying is be precise. idea. Great. If I could ask a follow-up question. Um, I know there are some who believe that putting a staccato over a note is the same thing as making the note half as long with a rest after it. Would you agree with that perspective or would you see those two as distinct? Um, the thing about staccato is that somehow it isn't only and it isn't just how long uh, the note sounds, it is also a matter of attack. Yeah. And when you see staccato, you approach the attack differently than when you simply see a note uh, of certain duration and the rest after that. Does that answer the question? Yeah, the reason I was asking is because in the Mozart F major example you were doing, uh, the rest on beat four of measure one is an eighth rest and the note before it doesn't have an articulation. But then in measure two, that beat four note before the eighth rest has a staccato. And so I would be interested in kind of what effect that would have on the rests after in those cases. Which note has a staccato, the second measure? Yeah, beat four of measure one has no articulation and beat four of measure two has a staccato, at least in the version that I'm looking at. Yeah, in my version two, but even though I am not sure that this is from Mozart himself. Okay. And if, and, and if it is, um, I don't think it should be any different than the previous measure. And uh, they should be treated just the same. Yeah, but I like that word you use, attack. I think that's how I would think of it more than a matter of the duration of how long the rest is. Um, okay, moving along here. Next one that I was interested in is, it is often sensible to phrase groups of four notes and groups of three notes going from the second note to the first note in the next group. So I have two questions about this. First, when you use the word group, I assume we're not talking about actual phrases since a full phrase would be longer than three to four notes. So I assume we're talking about kind of music contained within these phrases. So maybe a small motivic cell or a four note or something, idea that gets sequenced maybe throughout a phrase. Can you clarify what you mean by the word group in this yes, context? Yes, all of them, all of them. Uh, okay. A little motif, a passage that keeps on repeating uh, groups of notes and, I, and, I, and I'll show you. But again, the first thing is I take from the composer. So I'm mm -hmm. looking at the concerto uh, A major by Mozart, K488, and um, okay, I'll play the, the entrance of the piano solo, the first entrance. I'm stopping here, so I'm showing what happens now. For our listeners, this is measure 67. Now, what we see is three double thirds in the right hand, oh, actually, one can play them in two hands, uh, going right here. Now there's an answer to it in the left hand. Two, three, four, one, two. Okay? And 
then he continues. Well, he didn't specify it, but I already took it from him, and then I'm thinking instead of one, I'm thinking one, I'm reading from two to the next one. And then he continues more. And right here, he starts, who's before one, and I'll take it from there. Who's before one, who's before one, who's before one, who's before one, left hand. So it's in a melody, it's in passages, and when it isn't there, it's still nice to use. There's a few, uh, ah yes, the orchestra comes in, and here, what's the theme? Two, three, four. Two, three, four. Measure 83. So it kind of gives it a da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da kind of feeling. Yes. Um, interesting. And I guess it would probably depend on the context to know if after you emphasize that note that you're leading towards, if you create any kind of break in it to further make it clear what the units are or if it's just an accent. Well, it, 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 it's subtle. You have to know yeah. how to, to play it as if it's totally even and yet thinking. Sometimes when you think something, it's enough already to come out. But as I said, I take it all from the composer. Can you imagine yeah. Beethoven Fifth Symphony going like this? All like this. All like this. No, it goes two, three, four, one. Do you know Mozart's two piano concerto? Do you know Beethoven's fourth piano concerto? And some people think that uh, Gershwin took this from them. Oh, interesting. Okay, I like it. And I'm not saying that there are not uh, upbeats like three for one. And for one, yes, as I said, all upbeats are very important. But this one is quite popular and quite helps in passages. Yeah, I was going to bring up the Beethoven fifth myself, but I thought that was so obvious. I didn't even want it. But that is that so clearly makes that point that we go da 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 da, um, but without omitting upbeats like you were saying earlier. Right. 
This is in a motif theme way, and in passages, it helps legato. It is even a technique of, of using it on the piano. In, from a technical point of view, makes passages smoother, more legato, makes them shaped nicely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, now, related to this idea of sort of groups, um, I want to talk this about this on now more the phrase level as opposed to the level of the motif. Um, you said to acknowledge the classical rule of phrasing, short phrase, short phrase, and double the length phrase. Um, and although this is uh, in your book, you wrote of this as a classical rule with a capital C, this doesn't only apply to the classical era. Um, so can we show some examples of two plus two plus four phrasing or some form of short, short, long, um, and maybe a bit more modern of an idiom? I have lots of examples somewhere. Let's do it. Over the rainbow. I'm reading the words. First phrase, skies are blue. Second phrase. Now the beauty that the next double the length phrase is also in the words. And the dreams that you dare to. If you had to break it up to four equal phrases, you break to dream in the middle of to and dream. To dream put the two seemingly different phrases together into one long phrase. So, sorry. Second phrase. Now, a long one. as well as in the music. Here's my piece, Drag Rag. I'll start right from the melody. Now a long one. That's it. And now I will go to the entertainer by Scott Joplin. First phase. Second phase. Could have done the third one just the same. What he did. Eight bars, and let's see how. 
how Joplin does it. While the first time he finished, this time he goes, which is asking for continuation. So the composers did it. it it's very subtle, but it's there. And uh, okay, uh, you know uh, Gershwin's I Got Rhythm? Of course. I got rhythm first phrase, second phrase. I got music. Now, two together, and he does it even with bringing in the syncopation. I got my girl. Who could ask for anything? The who could ask is, is tying together into one longer phrase. Oh, uh, yes, uh, the beginning of his first prelude. These were already two bars, two phrases, and now double the length. Twice as long. I have a few more examples. Uh, maybe I will uh, uh, here. I'll I'll do one that um, uh, more uh, younger students play. Joyous Farmer by Schumann. First measure is first phrase. Second measure, the second phrase. Now watch the third and fourth measures. Sorry. They are together as one long phrase. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are, there are really thousands and thousands of such examples. Very interesting. So I guess. In a lot of these examples, not all, but a lot of them, they're kind of structured in a way that's sort of A, A prime, A double prime, B, or A, 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 B. And we might be tempted to do those as four distinct units. But what you're saying is there are certain compositional devices that often composers use, like the repeated left-hand chord in the entertainer or the syncopation in I've Got Rhythm that show, no, you should connect the third and fourth part of it. And so do short, short, long, as opposed to short, 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 short if I'm understanding correctly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, also, if you look at the melody in F, here, he could have done the same, to the same C and keep it a half note uh, long, but instead, again, to connect, to make it a longer phrase of eight bars this time, it was four and four bars, he goes. He gives us two quarter notes to keep on going, to keep the phrase going. Right, just like the two extra quarter notes in the left hand with the entertainer that you were exactly. talking about. Very interesting. Okay. That's right. Um, so we've been continually kind of zooming out more and more in this idea of grouping. First, we talked about motifs, then we talked about phrases. And now I want to talk about uh, your phrase mega beats. And I think this is a great way to keep kind of the moment to moment interpretation of a piece in line with the bird's eye view, kind of larger scale interpretation of the structure on of a piece. So can you give an example of an interpretation of a piece where the rhythmic emphasis on the micro and macro levels are kind of in sync and megabeats are acknowledged? 
Mozart Sonata K545 in C major. First measure. Four, four times. We stress the first beat in four, four times. That, that I think everybody knows. Third beat is second importance. Third, I said, yes. Third is second in importance, and then comes second and last. So, in other words, it's a sort of a diminuendo. And then comes another measure, and every measure is, is practically the same. One, two less, three less than one, more than two, and less, and, and four is the weakest. Okay, we, we know that. Now, if we look at two measures together at the beginning, let's look at the first note in the right hand and the first note in the second measure in the right hand. We actually got here what we call a two-note slur, a two-note phrase. If we look at these two measures as a two-note slur, we will play them like this and not like this <laughs> right. Uh, right by the way my my uh, awful uh, addition here has an accent on the beat so I well it shows the descending line of, on the downbeats of measure one to four we have c b a g oh boy you are ahead of me yes so <laughs> four measures give us c b a, a little more than the C, a, a little less than the C, sorry. Less than the first measure, but more than the second measure, and then it resolves into G. I can even play it nicely with the left hand. So again, the idea, if someone wants to be very expressive and play with crescendo here, and then so expressive I wouldn't even do it in romantic music, let alone a Mozart. First measure, it's all one continuation. It gives us one long line instead of breaking it down. Which was another one of your guidelines to phrase long lines as well, right? Yes, and some of the things we talked about are tools, are ways to do the long line. So everything that we talked about today comes from just a small sliver of your book, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tours. And that's not the only book you've written. I know there's also The Art of Fingering, which I just saw your interview um, on the Piano Parent podcast about that book. So you've obviously done a lot in terms of writing. You've done a lot, obviously, as a concert pianist. So can you give our listeners a more general sense of what you're up to nowadays and how everyone listening can learn more about you and your ideas about music? Okay, nowadays it's really hard to uh, talk about nowadays because we have Corona. So yeah. <laughs> for a year and a half, I sat at home but uh, canceled all concerts, uh, masterclasses, and traveling all over the world. But I produced at home. I, I, I actually wrote um, my autobiography in Hebrew as well as the original that was in English. I uh, wrote my Rhapsody in Blue piano solo arrangement. I wrote some my, my toccata for organ. I, I wrote some things and I published some things. 
So I use my time at home. Uh, last July, I started uh, resuming my camp, my travels, my concerts, and last October, and I'm hoping to continue this March, who knows what will be, and then uh, this coming uh, June as well. Uh, how can people find out more about me? They can listen uh, to my YouTube channel. It's Barney, B-A-R-N-I-V, state of those letters, uh, B-A-R-N-I-V. I got lots of uh, interpretations and uh, lots of my own uh, music as well. And uh, they can uh, read my book and, uh, and they can <laughs> watch me uh, in, in, in piano groups. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do see a lot of those posts. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. That was very fun. I learned so much hearing those guidelines and hearing these demonstrations added a lot. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It is my pleasure and thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.